Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh is joined by Christy Farr, a former tech journalist and now principal investor at Omer's Ventures, and Dr. Jonathan Slotkin, chief medical officer at Contingo Health. Our guests share their skepticism of value-based care and how to engage high-cost medical specialists in outcomes-based arrangements. I'm Josh Israel. This is the ACO Show, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jonathan Slotkin. John is the chief medical officer at Contigo Health and associate chief medical informatics officer at Geisinger Health, and by Chrissy Farr. Chrissy is a principal investor and health tech lead at Omer's Venture. Glad to be talking to you both. Now, Thanks Chrissy, for having us. Yeah, thank you. Chrissy, when I invited you on the show, I said the topic would be value-based care. And you said, is it okay if we're skeptics? We've had a lot of boosters on, of which I'm one, so it should be a fun conversation. thought I could just start with each of your backgrounds a little bit. John, can you tell me first, what is Contigo Health? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. So Contigo Health, it starts with this position, I think, that that most of your listeners know that that 49% of Americans get their health insurance coverage you know, through their employer. And this is more Americans than have Medicare and Medicaid combined. So employers, and really all of us, the employees, absorb a very large part of the GDP that gets spent on healthcare. And we think that employers are in a really powerful position to improve US healthcare. So about two, three years ago, the healthcare improvement company Premier decided to stand up really an entity connecting and bringing together the nation's most innovative employers and health systems. And that's that's Contigo Health. And just, just in brief, the part we're probably most well known for is our employer centers of excellence network, the, the program where associates from Walmart, Lowe's, McKesson, and other large employers, you know, get the very best care at centers like Mayo, Geisinger, Virginia Mason. And one other part of our business that, that's very large is that we provide TPA and care management services to moderate-sized employers and also provider-sponsored health plans. And in this two and a half years, we've grown a lot, Josh. Contigo Health, we're up to about 300 employees now and really getting to bring together the strengths of our employer and provider partners and our parent company, Premier. And I, I, I expect and we hope for a lot of growth in the next year particularly, Josh, in the area of network activity and the spaces between locations on the map and how, how networks function is an area of real focus for us. That's great. Uh, thank you for that background. Uh, Christy, you, as a lot of our listeners will probably know, have quite an interesting background. You were previously a journalist and health tech reporter at CNBC and a writer at Fast Company. And now at Omer's Venture, I should say for disclosure that Omer's is an investor in Allidade. And I think a lot of people don't even realize what Omer's is. As a Canadian public mm -hmm. pension fund, why does it have a venture arm? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, you know, you see these days with um, entities like pension funds, they want to have very diversified assets. And, and it's not uncommon for pension funds to have venture be a part of that and also growth equity, which is where we invested in Allidade. So we are their dedicated venture arm, but invest typically between kind of five and 25 million. So earlier stage companies. And um, I specifically cover the health tech area, which is a big priority for us. When I was living in California, there was a, a fairly well-known restaurant critic who decided to open his own restaurant, and it didn't go so well. So how's it been going for you with the transition from reporting on tech companies to, to working in it and investing in it? 
great so far. I think there are actually quite a few overlaps between my prior job and my current one. And, and some of them I, I really hadn't taken into account until I, I started on this, on this new journey. But I love investigative work. I love kind of uncovering truth. And I love interviewing people. And I'm just curious in general about healthcare and, and always want to be learning more. And I think that mindset has definitely been helpful to me on, on the investment side. Now, since your fund is the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Fund, does that constrain you in any way? Or is it really a venture fund looking for the best investments? It's a venture fund looking for the best investments. I brought all sorts of companies to the table so far and haven't heard anything about it. So, I, you know, we, we're, we're quite free to invest across kind of the areas that, that we focus in. I wouldn't bring a, a non-healthcare company to the table, but that's more about kind of how our fund chooses to structure things. And we tried to kind of lead with specialization and expertise versus being generalist. And are you an investor in Contigo? Is that your connection to Dr. Slotkin? No, actually, John and I go way back. When I was at CNBC, he was one of the people I would call just to pick his brain on various topics because John, you know, really sees it all as and I'm both a business person and he, you know, works at a big health system and he's a physician as well. As he often reminds me, you know, <laughs> sometimes we have to kind of explain certain concepts because John kind of humbly points out that he is a brain surgeon and not kind of in, in the realm of finance, but, you know, truly John sees it all. So we, we work together on a board now of an MSK company and Peerwell, which we're both really passionate about and just have continued our friendship. So, John, let's talk about value-based care. Your doubts about it, do they come from your work as a neurosurgeon or from your work with Geisinger? And I will give you my biases, you know, to hear that a neurosurgeon doesn't think value-based care is such a great idea. You know, it's a little bit sort of like, well, of course not. You know, neurosurgeons are, are doing great. They're incentivized to do a lot of procedures, getting paid quite well for them. What, what could possibly be good for a neurosurgeon about being paid for outcomes rather than procedures? So let me, let me hear what you have. Oh, yeah. No, so I don't think, and probably I don't think for Chrissy either, the skepticism is that we don't think it's a good idea. I think we think it's a great idea. I think the problem is in current execution. The skepticism comes from the reality as deployed or as currently deployed. There are very few people at Geisinger that are not behind the value-based transition. Just probably, gosh, a year and a half ago now, me and Jaywan Ru and Karen Murphy from Geisinger had a piece in HBR, really the last half of which was talking about what we thought needed to change in value-based care in the post-COVID era. And so it's not that it, that it all needs to go away. I think for me right now, Josh, the biggest thing on my mind about value-based care is that I'm worried about it. I'm worried about its likelihood of success because what I, what I fear is that as we continue in and eventually start to emerge from the crisis, and I know this from talking to a lot of the stakeholders, almost all stakeholders are saying, we need more fee-for-service. We can't disrupt it just yet because it's the only way we can safely emerge. And frankly, without any real changes in the healthcare business model, that's probably actually true. And so, of course, if that happens... What we're gonna come away with is legacy ways, high and expensive interventions, you know, low and meaningful transformation. And I think for me and, and in the piece that J1 and Karen and I wrote, what COVID underscored for us is that the transition to value-based payment models needs to be 
bonafide and meaningful, not pilots and interesting programs like we see now, both from the government and, and from companies, modest scale stabs. And maybe this takes it quite the opposite of, of where you thought I was. I think we need real payment reform to create funding mechanisms that make prevention and population health the true focus of the care. So we talked in our piece about even moving to things like all payer global budgets, because the incentives need to be sufficient to allow for investments that, that truly change care delivery models and also lead to digital transformation, you know, of our nation's care. And then I think we're really going to get reduced costs and improve patient experience. But right now, I think a lot of what the United States calls value care is fascinating and interesting pilot programs and provincial and bespoke efforts. And I, you know, I'd leave it to say, Josh, that you, and I'm sure you saw this paper in the last couple of weeks in JAMA Health Forum by Rachel Reed. And that's the, the profound disconnect between the value-based care efforts that exist and the way providers get paid. We know that last year was the first year that more than 50% of providers in the United States are employed by some entity. And so we have insurers in the government paying these health systems for care. And then of course the systems are play, paying the employees that they have and the providers. So Rachel Reed and, and folks at Brigham and Rand looked at 31 physician organizations and found that 80% of primary care physicians and 90% of specialists are paid by volume. And that 70% of those people's compensation was volume based with on average only about 9% of their compensation being tied to value care. So we can bring the best value care efforts in existence to payer systems. But as long as the people providing the care are overwhelmingly paid based on volume, I don't see how we have aligned incentives to make it work. So, you know, I just, I guess I'd leave that the point at that, that we know that this, you know, probably exists because the systems are trying to straddle the fence between fee for service and value care. But as we know, every system is perfectly designed to achieve exactly the results it consistently mm -hmm. achieves. And when you have pay designed in this manner, you know, unlike a place like Geisinger, where there's not volume based compensation, if you keep going with that old method, you could bring the best things out of CMMI in the world, but if more than 50% of the U.S. providers are paid on volume, I don't think you're going to see change. So we likely will have more common ground than I thought here. The one thing I would say, though, and this doesn't really disagree with your, your fundamental point at all, and that paper you mentioned is during COVID, we all saw many providers take a hit to their income, 10%, 20%, or even more. And we did have providers with an allotted network for whom that was true. And that amount of income was supplemented by value-based care or even enhanced by it. And though overall, 10 to 20% or a little more may not be enough to overall, you know, move the battleship of U.S. healthcare system, for some of these small practices really dependent on meeting payroll every month, that, that amount was a lifesaver. So I would say it's more than just window dressing, but, but I, I agree with you that certainly we, we share the point of view that, you know, until we have a real alignment on value-based care or fee-for-service, you know, we need to make some more changes. But thank you for your thoughts on that. Chrissy, what do you think? When you hear a value-based company coming to you as a potential place to put some money, you know, looking for investors, do you, do you share the, those same concerns? Yeah. I mean, I think 
John kind of laid it out perfectly. The reason that I responded when you had asked me about value-based care and I said, can I share a skeptical view? I, I think it's more because I've seen it as a journalist. I've seen it now as an investor where, you know, you talk to a new startup company about this question of just, you know, how would you be reimbursed? How will you be paid? And the answer is so often just kind of inevitably, well, it's, it's value-based care. It, we will enter into kind of these sorts of agreements and this is the future and it's, you know, and then you look at kind of the reality of where we are today, and it's it's such a small percentage of how healthcare, you know, still functions. And I think, you know, with with all the kind of writing about it and the and the academics supporting it and and public health professionals seeing the need for it, we can kind of you know get into this mindset of thinking it's here and, and we've solved the problem. And in reality, you know, as John pointed out, we haven't. And I agree with you that, you know, it's more than just window dressing, but I think we as a kind of healthcare entrepreneurial ecosystem have to figure out how to function in the world of fee-for-service while at the same time kind of orienting towards a future that will probably include more and more kind of value-based care models. But we have to be able to do both. The only other thing I'd add is just, you know, this question of, of measurement. I just don't know that the system as it stands today is really set up to have the data and the analytics required to truly measure what it means to provide value-based care and what are those things that we should be measuring. For instance, if we just say, oh, you know, we will reduce readmission rates at, at hospitals, is that enough as an indication of whether or not we're doing a better job of managing, say, you know, heart failure or there are other quality metrics that we should be looking at as well? And, and how do we access that information? So I think that that problem is also one that I could see that the startup community is thinking through as well. John, I would like to get your thoughts as a neurosurgeon on this, in that one of the challenges we have seen with the switch over to value-based care is the role of specialists. You know, Allidate is founded on the notion that PCPs can quarterback care and try to help guide their patients to higher value care, but it's quite difficult to get specialists into value-based care networks because they're doing great as they are. Um, there's generally a shortage of supply, so they don't have to change their practice fundamentally if they don't want to. What do you think could be some approaches, if any, to bring highly paid specialists into outcomes-based networks? Yeah, you know, I, I, I could share some of the experience at Geisinger, and of course, I'm not speaking as a spokesperson for them, but but just my lived experience there at Geisinger and where we do in a lot of areas have have alignment with our our specialist groups, including neurosurgery, I think it a key piece as mentioned before, and I, so I won't expand on it here, is the way people are compensated. And this is a, a paper folks at Geisinger several years ago wrote up, uh, the way we, we compensate people. And of course, Geisinger has a health plan with you know over 500 or 600,000 covered lives. So it, it walks an interesting straddle between its commercial payer base, maybe about a third, its own health plan members, and then governmental payers. And that, that is an interesting straddle that I think that leads to, to good alignments, um, or at least alignments that I think are both realistic for current healthcare, but also progressive at the same time. So it, the compensation, it, it, to me, is critical, but it, it's necessary, I guess I would say, but it's not sufficient. The other direction I think that's been really important at Geisinger, and, and not just Geisinger, by the way, Mayo and Intermountain and other places, many others that do this kind of reengineering work, is in Geisinger's case, things like proven care, care delivery reengineering initiatives, where 
provider-driven, provider-led mechanisms are put in place around appropriateness of care, the way it's hardwired into our digital systems, and then the way that it's transacted. And, you know, you, the principles of that, you know, better than, than many and, and your listeners do too, which is one is keeping score. I think a lot of this doesn't work with specialists if you don't keep score and then the score you keep, it needs to be at least directionally accurate because we've all interacted with specialists where the first thing they say is, well, your data, Josh, John, Chrissy, your data is malarkey. You know, because either you're not risk adjusting it well, or I take care of the sickest patients and all these other things we hear. So your data needs to be strong and it, and defensible. If You know, it's not going to be perfect, but strong and defensible. And then with that as a starting point, provider-led journeys on workflow redesign, both on process metrics and patient outcomes, I found at least gets the most skin in the game and the most mutual alignment with with employees at Geisinger. And this is true, I think, Josh, and you'd know much better than I, for folks that are not employed by big systems, that there are ways and methods that, that resemble this actually too, to get folks aligned towards a common goal. And I think that really people more and more talk about increasing providers' happiness. And I think that's totally mistaken and glib. I think it's about seeking providers' engagement and they're very different and i think things like this care delivery re-engineering and paying people fairly but not on volume start to be pieces of that real engagement josh that can can make great change chrissy when you are looking at healthcare investments if value-based care isn't always so compelling what sort of spaces are you finding interesting right now yeah, I mean, I would say value-based care could be very compelling. It's just making sure that, you know, it's it's the right kind of approach and not kind of using value-based care as sort of a, a catch-all kind of at the end of the rainbow, this is, this is going to be the great unlock, which is kind of what we see today. But, you know, within kind of healthcare tech in general, we are looking across a, a variety of different areas right now, spending a lot of time on digital health infrastructure, thinking through kind of what are the, the, the tech stack, what are the tools that digital health companies will need as we see kind of more and more emerge that are focused on, you know, and this is something John and I have written about becoming the, the providers themselves, which you see, you know, increasingly because I think health systems have not caught up when it comes to being patient focused, consumer focused. And now consumers are responding by turning to a bunch of these digital health alternatives. So we think about you know those models, we think about the, the new tech stack to support them, and then we focus on specific patient populations as well. So at the moment, we're looking at kind of the aging area, palliative care. I know that's a, something that you've, you've looked, at, looked at a lot as well at Allidade and you know, continuing to kind of seek out companies there, knowing that it's, it's been a really tough space historically. So that's just to name a few and happy to delve in in, in any of those areas. Yeah, I know you and I have actually spoken not too long ago about the behavioral health space as well. And that seems mm -hmm. like one of the most challenging areas where there's just a scarcity of providers. Digital, you know, app-based mental health treatments have just never really caught on. I wonder what you think when you hear about, about companies trying to make the best of a difficult situation there. Yeah, we, we talked about this because we spent about six months last year looking at behavioral health solely and, you know, saw a lot of companies, some, some very good, some not so good, 
my concern coming out of that exploration is just that the idea of a digital pill mill, when you kind of look at the, the financials for some of these companies, like it doesn't really make that much sense to provide kind of therapy and longitudinal care. And oftentimes what you see them doing is, is much more kind of prescribing of medication. And because of that, we see, you know, these models now emerging where the most common kind of patient interaction is to come on, use it once, get some medication and, and, and essentially leave the platform. So that concerns me. But that said, I think, you know, there are some companies that have been doing the opposite and, and doing it very well, carefully kind of curating you know, the right sorts of models. They like collaborative care a lot. We've talked about that. There's a few great companies there like Mindula and, and Concert Health and others that I think are doing it the right way. But it's all very tricky. And while the need is there, we just really don't want to get behind something that could cause or create kind of any kind of patient harm. John, is behavioral health an area that you have dived into at all? Yeah, absolutely. On the Contigo side, this is an area we, with our large and medium-sized employers, we're, we're constantly talking about, especially right now with what they're seeing in their workforces. And, you know, I, I think when we, when we, we all talk about this notion of don't just digitize broken processes, this might be true more in behavioral health than almost anywhere. You know, when we talk and you, you raise some of this, Josh, access, equity, cost, you know, issues in so much of U.S. healthcare, but really, really powerfully felt, I think, in, in behavioral health. And I think a big piece is both in the digital space and in bricks and mortars, focusing on what's broken and not working. I mean, when, when we think about it, U.S. healthcare outside the digital space now, and we talk about getting upstream in all forms of health, so little payer coverage exists in behavioral health with the exception of profound and severe mental illness and substance abuse. So the ability to get upstream when that's all you focus on is inpatient substance abuse and profound mental illness, it's really not there much. And so what, what current U.S. mental health care is, is a lot of people with the mild and moderate conditions, you know, paying out of pocket at appointments that start at several hundreds of dollars, you know, at bricks and mortar usually, and such a small, you know, segment of the U.S. population can afford that. And, and that's if you can find an appointment, you know, with someone near where you live. So then digital behavioral health entrants emerge naturally and it's ripe for disruption. But again, we, we can't just digitize the broken processes. And there we have our own also additional unique challenges Things like continuity of care. A lot of the providers at many of these entrances, you know, there's a gig worker element to it. So when we think about continuity of care and having the same therapist for a substantial period of time, I think that's a challenge for a lot of entrants. Now, companies like SteadyMD and others are emerging to try to solve that problem, but it's certainly not solved yet. And, and cost, I think, less an issue, but still still an issue. And then things like racial and ethnic disparities in this access continue to be a real problem. And, you know, Chrissy mentioned earlier measurement, maybe not more important in any other space than mental health is going to be and continues to be this measuring outcomes that matter to patients and really consistently measuring it. And it's something Chrissy and I and others, we've written about this, really calling on the digital entrance to take leadership in this area of measuring 
you know, the impacts of, of the activities that they engage in on patients. Well, Dr. John Slotkin, Chief Medical Officer of Contigo Health, among other things, and Christy Farr, Principal Investor of Omer's Venture. I guess I'm going to have to find somebody else to argue with about value-based care and really appreciate you both taking the time to join the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Leanne Prieti, Dan Ablin, and Alana Coogan. Our theme music is by Greg Berry. You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.